Welcome back to Ag Watchers. We've got another special guest all the way from uh, the other side of the country where they're they're allowed to get out and about. Uh, we've got Phil Brunner from Bailiwick Legal. Hi, Phil. How's it going? Hi, Andrew. How are you? So we thought it'd be a good idea to get Phil on to talk about all of these new manslaughter laws and uh, around occupational health and safety. So Phil, tell us a bit about who you are first and uh, and what your business is. Right, thanks, Andrew. So I'm the principal of Bailiwick Legal. Uh, we are a specialist firm uh, which in which we deal predominantly with uh, the agricultural sector um, in Western Australia. Having said that, I have recently actually dealt with uh, a client a resident in South Australia working in Victoria for a company based in New South Wales. So um, we, we can actually deal uh, across borders um, and uh, part of what we do, a uh, suite of work includes employment law. Uh, which, uh, as you probably know, um, most businesses across the country, um, outside of Western Australia, certainly are covered under the Fair Work Act. So, um, yeah, we've had some discussions in the past. <laughs> yeah. and- we, yeah. we know a bit more about it. We know a bit more, Phil, about employment law than what we care to know, care to have known from the beginning. But and and, and, know, and, yeah. I, I, <laughs> and we know more than we knew in May. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. In terms, yeah. in terms of bailiwick, what does bailiwick mean? Uh, bailiwick uh, is an old English term. Uh, my wife uh, came up with the name uh, for the firm. And bailiwick basically means um, you know, what you're good at. What's your specialty? Um, you know, in the context of what is your bailiwick, what is it that you do? Right? And so... We do law. We do law predominantly in the agricultural sector. Uh, that's certainly where we concentrate our services. And uh, we're somewhat unique in some respects because we're, I think, uh, within Western Australia, probably one of maybe a handful of firms that specialise in the agricultural sector. Um, we're unique amongst those, though, because we also deal with tourism. And um, you'd probably appreciate uh, there's becoming a lot of crossover uh, between agriculture and tourism. Um, Especially down at Market River. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, but uh, through the rest of the state as well now, um, COVID certainly has put a bit of a dent in that growth um, across the country. Um, but, but, but there will be a lot more internal tourism. Yes. In terms of people going yes. for that trip to Carnarvon or Albany yeah. or wherever. That's right. And uh, I think there's a, a growing farm stay community arising, uh, certainly in WA at least. I don't know whether you've heard, um, I think it's called UCAMP. Uh, it's an organisation. I thought it was across Australia, but maybe it is only WA. Is that the one? Is that the one where they you can put put out parts of your farm for camping type arrangements? Is that right? When they and you basically go and run a run a camp site there on farm. Yes. Mm. Yep. Yep. Park your caravan up and uh, you know bring out the billy and away you go. So, so, so Phil, we, I've known you for almost as long as I've been in Australia, I think. Right. Uh, because we uh, 
obviously I, when I was living in Western Australia for five years, we knew each other then. You, you're, you're fairly heavily involved in WA Farmers. What, what is it you do there again? Uh, well, I, I know what you do, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is for my benefit. <laughs> right. Um, I've uh, had a fairly lengthy history with WA Farmers uh, as, as the association here in Western Australia. Initially, I worked in-house uh, as their legal advisor. So in that context, you advise not only the association, but uh, members uh, as well. And um, so to cut a long story short, where that service became too expensive, um, the organisation outsourced it. And that's coincidentally the time when I actually moved back into uh, the legal fraternity um, to continue my career in, in the fraternity, if you like, in the profession direct. Um, so I've had a, a very lengthy association with that organisation um, and we'll do uh, all of its legal work. Um, but also it's been a, a source of business as well. So members can come through to us. Um, they get uh, you know, services for free occasionally. Uh, certainly introduction uh, provision. Um, talks uh, are free and if they have a matter that uh, needs to be dealt with well then we take that on board as well right oh so we'll get we'll jump after that's the introductory bit done mm. let's jump into the, uh, the nitty-gritty of it you, you've been doing a, a series of road shows which is a uh, something that Matt and I are not aware of this thing called doing presentations in person that's uh, that's something that we just remember from ancient history but Partly in WA, you've been going around the country, actually seeing other human beings, and th yeah. those talks have been about um, the new manslaughter regulations. Can you give us a bit of a background into them, and and what? Yeah, give us give us a quick background into those manslaughter regs. All right. Well, you, you say regs, but it's actually a bill. So the bill was introduced, I think, late last year, <coughs> um, in the lower house, and. Uh, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the West Australian setup at the moment in terms of government. Uh, the current Labor government uh, controls the lower house by a significant majority. So um, there's little, if any, debate about bills in that forum these days. And so this was uh, pushed through that lower house pretty quickly. Uh, came into the upper house, um, I think, uh, either very late last year, or early this year, and then has been uh, hived off into a couple of committees, which I'll come back to, or we can talk about their findings in a, in a little while. Um, by and large, the bill is meant to, this is the, the government's sale pitch, the bill is meant to uh, align with the harmonisation of health and safety laws across the country. So again, it's probably something you may not be familiar with, but around about 2006 to 2009, on a national level, all the states got together to consider and, and agree a model set of laws for occupational safety and health. And again, by and large, some states have introduced those laws. Um, 
And I have to say, from my understanding, most states have not introduced those laws uh, as they were agreed, but have introduced them with uh, subtle technical changes, sometimes major structural changes. So, um, you know, the concept of model laws is all good and well back then, but when it comes to actually introducing them into your own state, there's been changes. And that's something that's happening in WA as well, in the sense that um, whilst the sales pitch is that these are model laws, the reality is that there's some significant issues uh, within them that don't actually uh, conform and follow the model law model. So, so Phil, that's, that's obviously always the case. We see quite a lot that bills tend to change around the country and we probably live in a country that's, from my point of view, coming from the UK, it's, we've got all sorts of different laws in different states, which is uh, something that is starting to occur more and more in the UK. But what does it actually mean, the, these bills? And obviously you're, you're focused a lot more on Western Australia, but what does it actually mean for the average farmer, these new, new rules, new, new bills? Right. Uh, and... That's where the rub comes in, I guess, with some of the, the provisions in the bill which don't conform with the model rules. Um, and the best example of that is how a couple of these changes tie in. So um, there are proposed to be two streams for an industrial manslaughter charge. Uh, the most significant is what they're calling a crime. So manslaughter, industrial manslaughter as the crime. And um, where, where there's a crime, uh, it's what they're calling um, effectively gross negligence. Um, where the, a person engages in conduct, knowing that the conduct is likely to cause the death of an individual and in disregard of that likelihood, um, uh, fails to uh, comply with a of health and safety duty. So really it's, it's knowing that there's uh, a hazard or risk that might lead to death doing absolutely nothing about it and then someone dying. So that's the crime. Um, the bill's proposing significantly increased penalties, right? And so currently we already have a manslaughter charge uh, in the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So this doesn't really change much other than the penalties. The penalties have increased from, I think, around about 500000 to, uh, for an individual, $5 million. Um, and the imprisonment term has increased from five years to 20 years. So a significant increase in the range of penalties for that. So if we just concentrate on the issue of crime only, um, and we talk about the monetary penalty, one of the quirks within the bill being introduced in WA is a prohibition against insuring the penalty. 
Right. So you, so you've got to pay out your own pocket, basically. That's right. In the other states, as far as we can tell, this provision was considered by New South Wales and rejected. Western Australia seems uh, quite uh, bent on bringing this in. Um, it's been reported anecdotally to me that the reason for that is effectively um, retribution. Right? There's an element within uh, Matt. Go on. I was going to say no. Um, just with regards to that, I mean, obviously your focus is on West Australia, but I did note um, come July or, or in July in Victoria, there was a whole swag of um, uh, media releases, you know, leading up to that, that the, that the change was happening to manslaughter regulations here and that obviously including that, uh, that uh, jail time that would be part of it for that type of gross negligent acts. Um, so I just was curious to, like, and given that uh, statistically, in terms of um, occupational deaths uh, across industries, farming is and agriculture is one of those industries that has actually a quite a high uh, rate of, of occupational death and injury. Um, you know, it's, it's a concern for not just WA, I presume, but you know, all of all of the uh, states that uh, you know that, that this is um, this is now kind of um, part of part of legislation. Okay, absolutely. Um, the notion of increasing penalties to uh, change behaviour in the OC health and safety space uh, has been around for a while and it continues. Um, you're right too that agriculture typically is an area which experiences um, certainly in Western Australia, on average, more deaths um, than any other industry. Um, and so I'm not suggesting for one second that we shouldn't be lifting our game. Um, it just becomes an issue of whether these laws satisfy that uh, outcome, if you like. Um, what is going to motivate change within the industry? Will higher penalties motivate change? Will having uh, someone who is, uh, say, fined $2 million uh, going to create change? And I, in the roadshows Andrew's talked about that we've, we, we did, the, po the question I've posed, and I'll, I'll introduce this by making reference to some cases that, uh, recent cases through Queensland and New South Wales, where the minimum penalties imposed have, has been 12 months jail and a million dollar fine. Now, in those cases I've read, the jail time has been a suspended sentence, but the fine still is there. And at a minimum of a million dollars, if that has to come out of your own pocket, how many farm businesses would actually survive? Very few. Yeah. And so that, I mean, when you talk about penalty changing behaviour, with that type of outcome, that certainly changed behaviour because you've no longer got a farmer working for the farm. You've got a, a family that's probably now out of farming and looking for a house somewhere with no money. 
Um, and you've got potentially, um, you know, upwards from one other employees that have worked in that farm business, no longer employed. So I don't understand and I've never understand the policy, the public policy reasoning behind not being able to insure a penalty. And it's interesting because in speaking with one of the members of parliament over here about this issue, it really is just a tweak on terminology. Under the existing act, um, the manslaughter charge is called gross negligence. And public liability insurance is there to deal with your negligence. By, by, by calling it industrial manslaughter crime, you're creating an illegality and insurance can't insure against an unlawful action. Right. Right. So to me, that's just skewing the whole thing out of balance. And when, Andrew, you ask, well, what's the impact on farming? Uh, well, a single death on farm is going to have a significant impact on those that are involved around that death. And in terms of if you have a, a property yeah, or a farming business, which could be could be a fruit picking farm or anything, really, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. In terms of liability, the directors are held liable. Yes. Uh, and the directors are held liable equally. Yes. Yeah. And that's an issue that arose uh, by question through the course of the roadshows. Um, you'll have situations which are not uncommon where you've, you've got um, either a company that's operating the farm or you've got a partnership that's operating the farm where typically the male uh, is the effective worker and the female, is the other part of the equation, you know, in a historic sense, um, doesn't really participate much in the farming activity, might actually work the books, um, but otherwise um, is generally sort of what I'll say off-farm. Yet that person is going to be equally liable, uh, certainly under these new laws. And, and what about if, does this only count for workers? Well, obviously, like a lot of farms, the director is also a worker as well. Like, like I know that in the <clears throat> like I might be wrong here, but I didn't think directors were covered under work and health and work and safety legislation the same way employers are. Hey, um, well, working directors will be covered. Uh, what, what you're talking about is, is this distinction between workers' compensation and off health and safety and the ability to actually get workers' compensation insurance for a director. Yep. So that is a different issue, yeah. But from an OC Health Safety perspective, uh, certainly in WA, and I'd be very surprised if this doesn't apply in other states, um, you've got duty to anyone who's on your property, anyone. Including yourself. And farming, including yourself, that's right. In farming, uh, again, this is an issue that I raised through the, the roadshow, which is, it's real. The farm environment is unique. 
I'm not aware of any other environment where a workplace is mixed with the residents. Bed and breakfasts. Uh, well, bed and breakfasts. You, yep. Yeah, you, well done. Yeah, uh, but so, but but it's not not in the same scale that yeah. Most farms are also residents. That's right, and most farms uh, historically, typically, um, the residence is where you rear your children. Mm. Which is I guess, should... which, which is another question as well. Is you know a lot of farm fatalities are not workers; they are children, aren't they? Well, it's we, certainly we in the context of, of uh, drownings, yeah. Um, but and and as a employment lawyer advocating in this space, um, the advice I have to give is that you should never have children in your work environment, ever. Yep. So no no trips in the in the the crew cab of the harvester and whatnot. That's right. Um, how do you hive the re residents off, though? Because the house itself is, whilst it's the accommodation unit on the farm... It's an office as well. It's an office as well. And so how do you hive that out uh, from the work environment? It, this is where farming is really such a unique environment. But having said that, you know, OCH health safety laws do apply. Duties of care do apply. Um, and, you know, yes, those duties do apply to all people on site. Um, and uh, the primary duty uh, applies to the employer with a, what I'll call a subsidiary duty applying to each employee. Right. Mm. It's interesting though, I think, Phil, I guess it's, it's one of those things too. I wonder how much of the sliding, when you're talking about something like, gross negligence and for those um, farm businesses that are that are doing I guess what could be seen to be appropriate measures in terms of workplace safety for their workers um, it could be the case you get deaths on farm or serious injuries on farm even though there's kind of good practices in place so it's not that it's never going to happen potentially there's always those you know, out of the box accidents, even with, you know, as, as much of the right um, safety procedures as you like, um, you know, a, a bullock can, you know, kick, kick a person or a horse can kick a person or whatever. You know, there's lots of these freak accidents that occur. So we're not talking about those types of scenarios. We are still talking about scenarios where it's fairly clearly demonstrated that, that there was inappropriate kind of management of the risk. Would that be fair to say? It would be fair to say in the context of, uh, you know, what, what's being called the crime of industrial manslaughter, yeah. And um, it would have to be blatantly obvious. The hazard would have to be blatantly obvious um, and effectively known to be a hazard to the employer um, and where the employer has absolutely done nothing about dealing with that hazard. Yeah, agree with you. Um, the, this, the secondary tier in WA that they're proposing is what's called a simple offence. And that's where uh, a person has a duty of care um, that 
duty is not complied with and the failure to comply causes a death. Right, so this is a situation where um, you, it's just an ordinary duty. It's your duty to take care of people, to ensure that they're not exposed to injury or accident. You fail in that, an accident occurs, but the outcome of the accident is death. And so what they're proposing here is a regime where in those circumstances, um, where a death results, the individual can be subject to 10 years imprisonment and a two and a half million dollar fine. Now, if the breach of duty gives rise to a substantial injury or the possibility of a substantial injury, that again is a different regime of penalty. And then if, if the failure to comply with the duty just gives rise to a potential for injury, or a minor injury, again, that's a different level, much lower of penalty. So a simple breach of duty is, is now being proposed to sort of fit between three different categories. You know, low injury, serious injury, death. I guess, you know, so it, depending on the outcome of the breach of duty, depending on the outcome of the incident, uh, determines the penalty regime. And I'm not sure whether that sort of fits in some sort of policy, public policy context either. Uh, I think if you've breached a duty, the outcome's somewhat irrelevant. You've breached it. Um, anyway, that's just my thinking in that context. Um, uh, and sure. sorry, coming back to a point you raised then, Matt, um, also is that um, in that context, in a normal breach of duty, um, a defence is uh, the very things you've raised. Uh, you know, if the employer can demonstrate that they've done all they, they are capable of doing with the resources they have at hand, then that is generally a defence. Sorry, Andrew, you were going to say something. So in terms of... Like it's very sobering this whole discussion, <laughs> and it's and it's something like I've been on a lot of farms and you can see things where things could things have been done the same way for years and years and there's never been an incident, but it could feasibly become an incident quite quickly, uh, just if you weren't concentrating on that particular day. But it, like if, for instance, you have a staff member, yeah, and you've done everything in your everything in your rights, you've, you've sort of created a policy manual, you've provided all the equipment to do the job safely, but you're not actually physically there on person at the, at the, at the, at the farm, or, or it could be in a warehouse or anything really, and they ignore that sort of detail. You wouldn't be liable at that point. For instance, let's say for instance, they, mm -hmm. uh, they're climbing out something, so you supply a helmet, but they don't wear that helmet and then they fall off and crack their head open. Are you liable for that or the fact that they've used, they've made a decision not to wear that helmet? If you've told them they should, but you're not there physically supervising, where, where does the law stand there? Well, you, you could be liable. Um, and this is another issue which I stress to clients. It's all good and well to have policies. It's all good and well to have procedures, you know, 
you have your induction procedures and you have a checklist. Um, but then if you don't follow up, if you don't continue a regime of ensuring uh, on a regular basis that machinery is maintained, keeping records of that, if you don't ensure on a regular basis that your chap is actually wearing that helmet, if you knowingly let the person get away with a breach of that protocol, then yes, you and the person then fails to wear it, falls off, cracks his head open, then yes, you are leaving yourself open to liability because you haven't uh, regulated your policy. And it can be as simple, I guess, as not, not you know, of going up a ladder, you know, at a certain height without a harness or without a, you know, without someone footing it or, you know, whatever the safety requirements are that you put in place. Um, look, these can be fairly simple uh, events, you know, what seems to be a simple day-to-day event that, that can become deadly uh, in the wrong circumstance. Absolutely, Matt. We, we've had, uh, I, I don't know whether you are aware, but a few months ago, uh, there was a death on farm uh, down near Esperance where two young guys uh, were engaged by a roofing contractor. I think this person, this contractor was a shed builder actually. Um, but they were constructing an addition to an existing shed and you know, farm sheds are not uh, low uh, sheds. They're yeah. very high, you know, often five, six or more metres above ground where the roof is. Um, these two young chaps got on the roof. No harness, no helmets, um, as far as I'm aware, no safety gear at all. Um, quite a bizarre accident as far as I'm aware because a, a huge gust of wind came through unexpectedly and they both actually got blown off the roof. Jeez. Now, one died and I understand the other is in a not very good way. Um, and, you know, uh, we haven't seen the outcome of that incident yet from a regulatory perspective Uh, but I'd be surprised if someone wasn't fined um, at the very least Um, but uh, you know you look at that as a as an activity and you think well yes there were many things that they could have done which are probably not hugely costly uh, to prevent those kids falling off. Mm. Yeah, this is the thing too, Phil, that we, I mean, obviously when you outline the, the penalty regime that's there and they're significant, but you, you know, you do need to keep thinking of your, you know, the, you, we are talking about scenarios where people are, are dying in the workplace or, or that are severely injured in the workplace. So, you know, the, the repercussions for not doing the right things are significant as well. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a real curly one. It is. Um, I, I personally don't think increasing penalties these days has much effect on changing behaviour. Well, it, I guess it doesn't really matter. Like, I can't remember what you said initially. Whether it's one year in jail or 10 years in jail, it's not much difference really, is it? Like no. it's, it's, it's still going to ruin your life regardless. 
Yeah. Um, And and I guess that's the sort of thing that I look at is, you know, we don't want to see anyone die, but the reality is there are so many things that could go wrong and you're not going to be aware of everything that could potentially go wrong without having everything completely controlled. It's not, it's not a a farm isn't, you know, a, a factory line where it's the same thing every day. It's, it's, it's a dynamic and fluid environment. And I guess that's, that's what concerns me is that you've got, you know, farms, businesses are going to have to, after, after, especially in the East coast, after a number of, of years with a lot of farms had low profitability and they don't have much cash reserves. And now they're going to have to go out and potentially spend a lot of money on improving sort of facilities to, to, to stop things that may be even just a small risk. Cause is, is it worth taking a small risk for, for 10 years in prison? Well, yeah, look, it is an interesting one. Um, the, the farm environment is dynamic. There's no question about that. And there's, uh, you know, depending on the, the business, the enterprise is actually undertaking, you know, there's such a diversity of activity. Um, generally, though, I think if you look at any particular enterprise, um, whether it's you know fruit growing or whether it's grain growing or whether it's um, uh, you know raising animals, um, most activities are still process orientated. And I think you could probably build some parameters around those processes from a safety perspective. Um, I'm not saying it would be easy, but I I think uh, that there's a scope for that type of activity or that type of work to actually be done. Um, When... When, sorry, but when, you, when you've been doing these, and I know it's West Australian focus there, but um, obviously, as you alluded to at the beginning there, that, um, and, and I've said to, about the Victorian situation, that these, these laws have been enacted across a number of states in, in slightly different ways. So they're pretty much in place now across the country by the sound of things. Um, when you've been going around the roadshows, has it been um, the case that, that farmers or, you know, farm managers or whatever, those responsible for ensuring their safety, have they been or are they aware broadly of, of the situation and their responsibilities and that things have changed or has it come as a bit of a surprise to them? Do you think there's much education around uh, that, so that people are, are knowledgeable enough uh, you know, across the board to, to know that um, this has been a change within their state and it's something they need to be on top of? Well, that, that's a bit of a loaded question, Matt. Uh, I, I probably should answer that by saying um, I'm pretty certain based on information and discussions I've had with a range of people within the industry that um, safety uh, and uh, the concept of making sure there is a safe workplace is is perhaps not given the priority it should be within farming, right, Uh, as a general term. Um, And that, yeah, there's perhaps a a lack of recognition 
of the severity of even the current penalties. You know, even the current penalties, you can impose a five-year jail term and fairly significant uh, monetary penalties. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't really know why the sector has lagged, say, behind mining and construction. Um, there seems to be perhaps a, a token uh, gesture by the regulator, uh, government, if you like, to educate within this industry. Uh, there seems to be a greater emphasis on mining and construction, certainly in Western Australia, from an education, educatory perspective. But, 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 but I guess in mining, though, like I'm just thinking in terms of the mining industry, the profitability in the mining industry is extreme. It bankrolls the whole country, effectively. So it's quite easy for them to have, you know, help uh, BHP or Rio Tinto will have teams upon teams of occupational health and safety staff just for that one they'll probably have a dozen people for each mine i would have thought whereas you could have a farm which has got 20 staff but they wouldn't have the profitability to actually be able to afford an occupational health and safety staff member there full time so i guess it's a slightly different situation but then again like you say construction a lot of construction businesses are one-man bands or or small family businesses as well. Yeah, uh, I agree. From certainly in a mining context, um, you know, it is easier for your larger miners um, to uh, resource um, that function. Um, yeah, construction um, at the moment. Um, I think construction companies are probably sailing close to the wind from a profitability perspective, so may not have as much resources. And absolutely right, in the context of agriculture, uh, very limited resources. Uh, cash flow is inevitably a problem year in, year out. Uh, even for the best of them, cash flow can be an issue. Um, Able, being able to throw resources at this particular issue um, is not, uh, well, I should say, there's a, perhaps a paucity of ability to throw resources at this particular issue. Um, and, and that's why I think there's a role to play for the regulator within the sector, uh, much, much greater than it is. And I'll, I'll give you an example in Western Australia. Um, and you know, back in the early 2000s, uh, there was this was an organisation, it still is, it's now called Safe Work WA, it's an independent association. It used to be called Farm Safe. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's actually Safe Farms now. Um, uh, back in the early 2000s, um, FarmSafe was receiving $75,000 from the regulator as a contribution to its efforts to try and educate and uh, raise the profile of safety within agriculture in WA. Um, last year, the regulator gave it $70,000. So you've got deflation. You have you got deflation, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think... You know, well, and the thing is, the regulator is aware that 
agriculture gives, you know, it has the most depth. Yet, yet it's actually going backwards with its efforts to assist that sector. And that doesn't make sense to me. At, at a time when it's introducing more stringent yeah. fines. Yeah. So, so, yeah, food for thought, really, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's like it's it's it is again. It's a sobering sort of topic, and it and it is, I guess, that sort of cross line between we don't want anyone being injured on any Australian farm, but at the same time, it's about that ability to be profitable as well. Yeah, you know, you could end up spending so much money on tying everything down that you end up, you know. A business that has to shut down anyway like you can't afford staff uh, and i guess it, it it probably puts the onus on people to as well as as well as the you know making sure the surroundings of of the property are safe when it comes to taking on staff you have to be even more you know delicate with with who you take on as a staff member you have, you have to make sure that you know that staff member is somebody who is going to follow the rules. You know you can't employ a dill basically, and yeah. you know because we you, don't want any we don't want any cowboys in agriculture when it comes to safety. Is what you're saying, Andrew? Well, 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 what I'm saying is you are going to have second thoughts about somebody who you think is is going to be a bit gung ho, mm. and yeah. you know you may. Be be more selective in choosing who you employ, or in many cases you might decide it's not worth employing someone. Like you might be like a, a sole operator farm. You might say, "Oh, I'm not going to hire somebody because it's too much hassle." You end up doing more work because you can't employ someone, and you actually put your own health at risk. Yeah. Because you're because you're too afraid of a of a ten year prison sentence. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but, but saying that, we've been in a six-month prison se sentence in Victoria under house yeah. arrest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. all those things uh, are right, um, and all those things are going to be exacerbated, uh, certainly in Western Australia, um, within the next uh, three, four, five months when we have harvest. Yep. Um, because at the moment. Uh, we're struggling to actually get workers uh, for harvest itself, and that includes truck drivers, yep. that includes uh, machinery operators, and that includes just your normal, um, you know, labour. Yeah, that's a whole lot of other aspect that you've got, you know, um, potentially uh, inexperienced and unskilled uh, labour, labour, you know, going into ag because it's one of the areas I guess that. From a COVID perspective, it's continuing to have work that needs to be done, um, and so and, and as an essential service has been relatively insulated to a degree from the from the you know the, the most harmful aspects of the of the downturn in the economy. So there's jobs there. You see it in a lot of the the uh, yeah, the um, employment papers. Yeah, there's jobs there in ag, but um, and there's a lot of people looking for work that don't have the experience. You could have a an increase in, in inexperienced people and potentially a lot more um, errors and, and riskier behaviour happening because they just don't know what they're doing. And that's one of the things that really shook me when there was a lot of calls for people to say, let's effectively conscript people who are on the dole, move them out to the countryside and put them to work. Or I think recently uh, scrap their hex debts if they, if they do work on farm. And I think that is 
the last person I would want to work on my farm is somebody who's been forced to be there. Yeah. You know, like that would scare the Jesus out of me if I had somebody there who didn't want to be there working with heavy equipment or even, even just a hand shovel that didn't want to be there. Um, Yeah. Sorry, Andrew. I I think that sort of demonstrates uh, another failing in the system in that the people that sort of are espousing that as a solution just don't understand agriculture. True. True. And And that's, and that's, and that's, that's a big, a big part of it, and I think that is a, a concern. But it just, it just does worry me that, look, there may well be people, even even if it's not forced upon people, there may be people who on working in agriculture who just don't want to be there. Yeah, they choose to be there, but they don't want to be there. Yeah, and you know, you know what it's. Everyone knows what it's like to work somewhere that they're not enjoying themselves or whatnot. It's, you know, it becomes difficult. Yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah. So, so in terms of what would be your, like, obviously you had had a lot of people at these presentations and I guess just one point, it's not a question, is the people that were at your presentations are probably not the ones that you have to worry about because no, they're, yeah, cause they're, cause they're taking the time out to actually come and listen. Yeah. But, so that, that was just a point. But yeah. the, the questions I was wondering is what, what, what was the major, because you did, you did three or four uh, Roadshow. Uh, we did half a dozen. Yeah, half a dozen. So all across this, this sort of the, the, the cropping belt. Yeah. What was the main or recurring question that that farmers were asking? So a recurring theme through the roadshows was based upon a proposition of how to deal with the stupid employee. <laughs> so you mean Matt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do you deal with that person who's your employee who just does something so stupid that they either injure themselves severely or just kill themselves? Um, you know, it's the old adage, you, you, you can't legislate against stupidity. Um, and it comes back to some issues we've been discussing here that if you've got your processes in place, you've got your policies down, you adhere to those, you monitor them, you audit them, and you do, you, know, you can continue with that safety regime that you've implemented and adopted, um, you will have a good defence against the person who, you know, for whatever reason, uh, does actually injure themselves, either not so seriously, seriously or fatally. Um, but yeah, look, no amount of uh, of safety measures is going to uh, prevent someone who has it in their mind to do something silly. So, so I guess this this question here is is more. You cover employment law as well, and obviously business health and safety is, is probably employment law. But in terms of if I've got an idiot staff member, yeah? Like, yeah. Let's, let's use an example. Matt, right? He, he keeps on doing something stupid. He's, he's just constantly stupid. And yeah. 
but I keep telling him to sit properly at his desk, for argument's sake. Yeah. And then he doesn't, and he keeps not doing it. But I keep telling him, "Am I allowed to sack him for being stupid?" Yes. So, so it doesn't. I don't get an unfair dismissal claim for sacking Matt for being stupid. Well, so long as you've gone through the appropriate regime, you know, warnings about, uh, you know, abiding by the safety rules. Um, yes, at a point in time in that chain, uh, you have no choice and you will have to, right? I don't think it becomes an option for you. If a person continues to refuse to abide by a rule that protects that person's health and safety, yep. then or, you've got to get rid of them. Or other people's health and safety. Mm. That's right. So, yeah. well, and that's the thing you're covering off on, um, you know, a series of whatever the, the, the numbers of warnings or formal warnings to say, to, 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 to demonstrate the seriousness of what you're trying to get them to do. And if they continue to do it, you outline what the path is and, and then they leave you no other choice than, you know, three strikes in your out type policy. But, but, or, but, but you wouldn't, right. but I, I'm, I wonder, Phil, and I might be, might be wrong, but if they did something that was a serious breach of health and safety, would you even have to give them a warning? Uh, well, that depends on, the, the, yes, the level of seriousness. So conceptually, and I can't think of anything right now, but conceptually uh, an employee could do something so serious that it warrants a termination instantly. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to look at the circumstances at the time. Mm. Well, that's, that's interesting. So I think it's, it's definitely, Phil, look, again, I think, you're, you're a fountain of knowledge when it comes to, to law. Um, and I just want to thank you for taking the time out to, to come along. Um, how can people, if people have got issues, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, well, Bailiwick Legal, we, uh, we can be contacted uh, online. We have a, a portal online where people can type in their uh, issues and questions. Um, uh, we have an office in West Perth, Western Australia, so we're on the phone. Um, I think uh, my mobile contact details are on there as well. Um, so what, what, what I'll do, Phil, is I'll put, the, I'll put your, your website address on the bottom of the, the podcast. Yep. Yep. But I, like, I do think it's, like, it's an extremely important thing, this occupational health and safety. And Look, I, I come from the UK, and we're probably – I've got a feeling we're 10 years ahead of Australia – where it comes to those sort of rules and regulations. And this has been a big thing for us as long as I've been working, yeah. health and safety. And my old man was a sort of responsible for health and safety and sort of the construction industry. Yeah. And I've taken him to visit farms over here and he's just like, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> can't do that. Can't do that. And I'm like, and he's just writing down lists in his head. Yeah. And then the whole drive home from whichever farm we've been at, he's just saying, found 50 things wrong with that farm that would get that person in prison in the UK. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but it's, but it's okay here. <laughs> or or it's, it's not seen as an issue here. Yeah. So, so I think it's, look, it's definitely something that people have to be aware of. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad we got you on to, 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 uh, to fill us in on the details. Uh, albeit, you know, you've, you've scared us all and, and probably <laughs> scared all the listeners into, uh, in, into, in, into doing something and it's probably going to make make some health and safety consultant 
very wealthy in the next probably two or three years if they well yeah that was reminds me of another change so under these proposed laws uh, health and safety consultants will also have a duty of care to the enterprise they're consulting right right so whilst it might make them very rich their premiums for insurance <laughs> are probably going to be pretty high yeah, and, and we could end up with uh, with the borstal being filled up with uh, people for health and safety claims. There'll be no room yeah. for uh, thieves and murderers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. But, well, thank you both. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks, thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll get you on whenever we've got any uh, pressing legal concerns. Um, in terms of not for us personally we'll do that in private but uh, if we have any sort of (laughs) industry legal issues that come up that we can uh, that you can uh, you know put a bit of uh, uh, your insights into so so thanks very much phil for taking the time out Uh, i don't know you've been on here for what 40 minutes i don't know what what is that for a lawyer six thousand dollars or something (laughs) no No, I'm not even. You'd probably have to go to the states for that type of money. He's not much more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, it's been good. Thank you both. Thanks, Thanks very much, Phil. Phil. All right, cheers. <laughs>